0: Hello, and welcome to episode 177 of Page One, the Writer's Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us on the podcast where we'd like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, find out how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. And we've got a great back catalogue of guests, so please do go and check that out. But this week's guest actually gave a sort of sneak peek last week in the sense Ooh. that last week's episode was the live recording at Chimera Festival with R.J. Barker, which was a great episode, so please do go back and listen to that one. But I did mention there were three uh, authors in the audience, two of whom have already been guests on the podcast, Shauna Lawless and Tendai Huchu, and we make that a hat trick this week with Queeve uh, <laughs> mcdonough
1: Yes, that's right. Uh, an Irishman who is a former professional stand-up comedian and a TV writer who now concentrates all of his energies on writing books. Uh, born in Limerick, uh, raised in Dublin, he's taken the hop across the water and Queeve uh, now calls Manchester his home. Now, his TV writing work uh, has seen him work on some of the biggest topical comedy shows on British TV, things like Sarah American television programme, Mock the Week, Have I Got News for You. He's uh, done work as a children's TV writer, which has earned him a BAFTA nomination for the CBBC animated series Pet Squad, which he created. Uh, but these days, he can be found happily writing his next book in the office, in the back garden, uh, with only his dog and his imagination for a company. Uh, His book, I Have Sinned, was shortlisted for the 2019 Kindle Storyteller Award, but his previous debut novel, entitled A Man With One Of Those Faces, was nominated for the Best Novel at the 2017 CAP Awards. And I'm not entirely sure what CAP stands for, but that was all read from his magnificently well-researched biography on his own website. So yeah. thank you, Creeve. If only more authors were as helpful. <laughs> exactly, sure. yeah. D- do our work for <laughs> us.
0: Uh, and he, he, yeah, he's re- the, his debut novel was the start of what was called the Dublin Trilogy, but there are now, uh, I don't know, eight or nine books or even more <laughs> in that, in that what is still called a trilogy. And we talk about
1: that. Increasingly, inaccurately. Yes,
0: exactly. Uh, and then... He also writes as C.K. Macdonald, uh, the Stranger Times books. And interestingly, he publishes the Dublin Trilogy books self-published and the the C.K. Macdonald books uh, are trad-published. I mean, talk about Mm. that, talk about why he made that decision. And, you know, the efforts that he goes to to ensure that the self-published stuff is completely, you you know... of a level with the traditionally published stuff in terms of quality and things like that so it's a really interesting and really fun chat so yeah it's a very fun chat. we will get straight into it after a quick advert for a writer's notebook and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest
1: but for now on with the podcast the blank page to
0: some it's terrifying an obstacle to overcome
1: Every story
0: starts with page one. I, I would normally say, did you always want to be a writer? But you started out stand-up comedy and then moved into the world of fiction later on. So, I mean, was it a was comedy or writing fiction your your first love, if you like?
2: Oh, well, I mean, I, I never thought I could write a book because I can remember uh, people like that. Because I wrote, I mean, as well, I was a stand-up and I was also, I wrote a lot of TV stuff and had, I kind of went through a period where, God, I must have had uh, probably about 10 or 11 scripts optioned for, I think I figured it out at one point, option for TV in various different levels. And none of them obviously made it to, to the all the way. So I was kind of always doing that. And people kept asking me about, oh, could you write a book? I said, like, oh, no, look, they're massive. How many words are in there was loads of them. God, no. How on earth do you do that? um but I never I never honestly thought I would be I'm genuinely still now quite surprised I've done like 15 16 books still shocked um but yeah it's just sort of I kind of got into it almost by accident where I had um an idea for a thriller book which I still haven't written by the way but I started (laughs) trying trying to write that and then I started trying to write it I didn't know what I was doing I ended up doing a starting a master's in creative writing um in um, MMU in Manchester and um, still haven't finished it, by the way. Um, <laughs> but I kind of did that just to sort of get myself into prose. And then I started going through prose. Um, and even then, my first book was a short story that got out of control. And I decided, look, I'm going to write it as a practice novel. Like I wasn't <laughs> intended to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that's ended up coming up with Bunny McGarry, which is probably the character that most people will associate me with, 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 with um, for the rest of my life, probably, which is weird, but true
1: you talk about writing a novel being very different than doing stand-up stuff and comedy stuff but i mean it's all and i can see that's true in the sense of the volume of work and the number of words as you say but i suppose it is writing isn't it i mean you must have always had a love of writing and creating things and, and, and crafting phrases etc
2: yeah. I mean, look, I always love the storytelling thing. It is a cliche, but it's true about the Irish that, you know, the storytelling thing is a big part in our culture and stuff like that. And it, it, it genuinely is. I mean, honestly, I never thought I could write long form him in all seriousness because my this sounds stupid, but it's my handwriting has always been dreadful to the point where, like, they sent me to experts and stuff when I was a kid because my mother, bless her, was a very very uh, determined woman. and She went, no, he's a smart child. And like they go, well, no one can read what he's writing. But he's a smart child. And like <laughs> she was literally um, like kind of just wouldn't let it go. Bless her. And basically kept pushing and saying, no, look, look, he's clearly intelligent. He's just he can't read his writing. And um, so all the way along, like I could never um, I always did anything, anything that had an essay in it and stuff. I did really badly because people couldn't read what I was writing, in all honesty. Um, so I was kind of well turned off the idea by the time I got out of school of ever writing anything, because um, in that form. So I love stand up because that was just talking and stuff like that and TV writing because it was always scripts on th- things. So I think probably I would have been much more into doing prose um except for the fact that education frankly turned me off it. Um and then, you know, I eventually came back to it. But yeah, you're you're um you're right. I mean there is like I think the thing the single thing is the a thing about stand up comedy that most people don't understand if you're not close to it. Like even if people don't consciously think this I, I think they unconsciously think that a lot of it's being made up on the spot and because it looks yeah. so effortless. Mm-hmm. And, and it does look so effortless um when the people do it brilliantly, but the reality is they work their arses off. In fact, it's it's kind of people find this disappointing or reassuring depending on their mentality, I think. But the biggest thing I can tell you about, because I've known some quite big stand-ups and got mates who are, you know, big successful stand-ups. And the thing is they're they're incredible hard workers. They really are. Um, and some people think, oh, it's because I thought it was sort of de- effortless and they're quite disappointed by that. But other people who were kind of maybe are reassured to go, all oh, right, so there is you work and you get better. It's like, yeah, you have to have the talent, but the talent itself is nothing. You work and you get better, yeah. um, which is really the same as everything I think I found in life. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, but stand up is in itself very different in the approach and stuff, because you can't write a book in the, in the way you write stand up or it'll just come across as someone trying desperately to be funny all the time. Mm-hmm. And that gets really tedious. And I've read books that people have written like that mm-hmm. and they are really, frankly, tedious.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, th- I think you've said that um, you've said in the past that in your books, the, the the comedy has to serve the plot as opposed to the other way around, essentially.
2: Yeah. That's a, that's a massive thing. I mean, I was, again, I've sort of said this, but it's always the big thing. I, I, I think people get wrong. Comedy is not a genre comedy is a style and what I mean by that is it's how you tell the story but the and the way you, the important reason to think about it that way I think is because that way the story always comes first and if you don't put the story first and like I, I think I've even sort of said this I had kind a of half joke people but if you've somebody walking into a room and the only reason they're walking into the room is because you've got a gag about that room then close the door, set the building on fire and start to get, <laughs> you've gone wrong. Um, because you're, they're supposed to be there because they have to be. Like even when I'm, when I'm writing, in my, I'm sitting in my office now and I have a big pin board here and I put up cards with all the different scenes on it. Um, and there's never, ever a joke on that board because because that's not what I do. And to be honest, even if you actually lit prose writing, the big difference again with stand-up is we weirdly did this years ago, a couple of years ago, because you've got a very strong main list and we ask people what's your favorite line from any of the books um and like all these people who are like hardcore fans kind of came back and almost none of them had a line they could actually cut it because it's a different kind of humor like i can give you you know 30 stephen wright gags i think or this or this gags and that gags but but prose prose that are funny just aren't the same and there isn't and it it's it's all about the character and it's funny because of who's saying it yeah rather than the line itself yeah
0: yeah absolutely and and obviously was that short story that grew into the grew into the first novel was that um the first one the first book of the what you call the Dublin trilogy we'll get into that in a minute but um yeah was that was that um yeah that was a man one of those
2: faces yeah yeah. and it was literally I just had that title um Mm -hmm. because a lot of time with with short stories and stuff which I still do now more for the stranger times which I'm sure we'll come on to explain the different things I do but I have this where I I like doing short stories, and I'll sometimes have like the idea of what the whole story is about. I'll literally sometimes just have a title, and and a man with one of those faces, just because someone said I heard someone use that phrase, and I was like, oh. And I had the idea of a bloke who spends his whole life being mistaken for somebody else all the time, or like di- different people all the time. And I realised when I started writing it that that's a very interesting premise, but nothing's actually happening there. And I had the idea that he was, he would he would end up. um visiting dementia patients in hospital and pretending to be who they wanted to be, which again is an interesting idea, but nothing's happening. And the real key the inciting incident was one of those patients tries to kill him. That's literally, I, could, and I can remember where I was sitting when I had that thought. I was in the MMU library, surrounded by people 20 years younger than me who can't feck and whisper. And... <laughs> I mean, they really can. There's a whole generation that whispering is a last lost art form. Don't get me started. But um, but yeah, I can remember where I was and literally just the whole book then coming out really fast. And I was literally going by, by the end of this hour session where I suppose you're working on a short story thinking, oh, crap, this is a novel. I'm going to have to write it. And I had sort of like big chunks of it came out then. Um, but again, I didn't really know what I was doing when I was writing my first book. You learn a lot from doing your first book um i think that's the big difference between anything is your first book and every other book is a big difference massively different experience i think certainly was for me because in the first book you don't know what you're doing on the second and anything beyond that you're going well i have done this before yeah so you you have the confidence to know that you can actually do it and stuff and i think that helps a lot
1: and and when you came to writing that short story that became a novel what was it that a drew you to that genre the crime genre you know have you have a crime reader have you always liked that kind of stuff I mean it's
2: one of the ones I read but yeah it is it is one of the ones I read and stuff so I've, I've, I've got a lot of kind of crime books that I do I'd say it's probably about half of what I read um so I like that sort of genre but um it's kind of weird. I was at a conference over the weekend and um one of the things was it was a fantasy and science fiction horror stuff in Derby, which is a great conference but it was they were talking about crime, on one of the panels and stuff. And the reality is, crime covers almost everything because it's yeah. crime by definition is is basically just inciting inciting incidents, you know. Yeah. So you can cause a lot of stuff ends up being crime if you like. Um, but yeah, it's always been an area I've I've been drawn to. But even then, when I when I do crime, I I I don't do it the way most people do crime in any way, shape, or form. I was really put, like, I was told by several people don't, like, literally comedy and crime does not mix. People don't like it. Um, When I went looking for an agent, we had no interest. They had one agent bring me in, which in hindsight, I'm pretty sure she was checking. If I knew what he famous, he wanted to write a book. Um, So, you know, I was told, like, I was even told by that agent, yeah, you'd have to kind of hide the comedy. And, like, you do sort of standard crime covers and sort of sneak the comedy in. And I was like that sounds ridiculous <laughs> like, and and to be honest i think it comes down to publishing um honestly is very conservative in what it thinks yeah. will and won't work and it has these accepted wisdoms that these things don't work and like there's people people like you know me and jt kirk sells massively uh you know tons of books and he combines comedy and crime and stuff because the reality is people do actually like that kind of thing and bizarrely, it's like traditional publishing when I was doing them as an indie. It's like traditional publishing is acting on a bouncer on my behalf, stopping people coming into this area. Like, no, J.D. Kirk and Quay and a couple of others, but that's nobody else. We're not doing any of this. Keep <laughs> everyone else away from this area. Um, so you end up with fan- people who are big fans of your books just because they can't find anything like it because, weirdly, publishing has discouraged people from from reading it.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we spoke with uh, James Oswald um, mm-hmm. and he his crime books are have a supernatural paranormal tinge mm-hmm. to them but he says that when they're marketed essentially they're marketed as straight crime books yeah. and it is like publishing just doesn't trust people to to you know take a chance on a different kind of story even though the evidence seems to be there that that um different approaches or cross genre and yeah. stuff like that is is actually very popular but it and must then, just be too difficult if- for them to to think hmm. about if you know.
1: then do get big in that area then they want to shelter from the rooftops that this is a comedy crime book because we know people like these specific comedy crime books but no other ones but these ones specifically are okay and it's oh, well, yeah, it's a very weird thing
2: i remember i asked my agent about the richard osmond effect because you know obviously that book's you know cozy crime kind yeah. of thing and all that sort of stuff done brilliantly, you know very very good books and i was like was that open up the area a lot more to comedy crime and he went To be honest, uh, it's probably got publishing thinking we need to find more celebrities to write books. That's the lesson they seem to have taken from it, (laughs) which is frankly the wrong one. Yeah. Because, you know, that's like that, obviously, got a good start because of who wrote it. But to be clear, those books have done very well in Germany. I was over there recently. They've done really well in Germany and all around the world and they don't get pointless in Germany. So let's, <laughs> people keep buying, I do see authors sometimes buying with celebrities writing books. I look, I can understand their they're thinking to a certain point, but Richard Osmond has not sold that many books around the world because he did Pointless and he sure as hell hasn't got Steven Spielberg St. interested because it's the guy who sits behind the desk on Pointless. <laughs> um, it's because it's a very well-written book that happens to be written by somebody who was previously famous.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you're I mentioned it earlier, but the that was the first book in what is called the Dublin trilogy, which <laughs> has then um grown arms and legs, I think it's fair to say. But you have kept loyal to that original series title that you have there, despite there being way more than three books.
2: Yeah, well but basically um it's it's weirdly, looking back on stuff, when I read my first book again recently, I had to read it for a thing. And I was actually surprised that I thought, oh, this is actually, I always thought there'd be loads of things I could spot, as so I wouldn't do that again. I was like, well, most of it, actually, I think I am I'm, I'm pretty much would stand by it. I'm, I'm pleased with it. But the thing I really didn't give any thought to was I had an idea for like a three-book series. I don't know why I decided to call it a trilogy, the biggest mistake ever made. Biggest piece of advice I give to authors, just don't put the word, don't put a number in your series title unless you're really 100% certain. Because um, basically I did it for the third book and then I realised as I was coming up to writing it that it was actually going to have to be a prequel and then another book. Um, and then what happened is I basically had like a 16 year gap and I um, I wanted to write sequels to the prequel, which is what I've done. So books five, six and seven all happened before the first two. and uh, It's basically, it's a mess. I've, it's like this. The one thing I will say is if I was traditionally published, they would not have let me, let me do this where I'm moving all over the timeline. But I just went, well, look, I'm my own boss. I want to write this book. I think the ideas for the books are strong. People really like the, the books that are the later books because they, they kind of – I established the world from 16 years ago or whatever. Well, you know, back early 2000s basically. Um, and there's like, you know, kids and stuff in the book because he runs a, football, a hurling team. And um, – that are very popular with the readers. And I was like, well, I enjoy I want to write, I want to write when people seem to write reading. And we kind of it was worse when you had book five in the Dublin trilogy, to be honest. By the time you get to book seven, you can kind of lean into the ridiculous and, would, and it just becomes more distinctive. Because we've now stopped getting the emails explaining what a trilogy is. Um because <laughs> we 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 thought of like splitting them up into different series and calling it the Dublin trilogy and all these ideas. And none of it was seen right, so we just we now literally call it the increasingly inaccurately titled Dublin trilogy.
1: And I mean, you mentioned it there that you're you you're obviously gone down the self-pubbed route, and and I wanted to ask you about that, and and specifically, you know, for people out there that are wanting to go down the similar path, what was it that you did? What steps did you take in terms of you know editors, cover design, all that sort of thing?
2: Well, I mean, a big thing because my um, My missus, who now runs our publishing company, she's, um, you know, she does that full time. She has for a couple of years. Um, She comes from a publishing background in educational publishing and stuff like that, which is obviously handy in itself. And um, one of our earliest things was we always wanted to kind of go for the best quality we could when we were Mm -hmm. doing stuff. So, like, we got some editing on the first book, as much as you could afford, basically. And we got a very good cover, um, which is, again, equally, well, really important to get people to, you know, start reading it and stuff. But then as we moved on, and the books started being successful, we um as a principal spend a lot of money on editing and stuff. I mean we actually spend there's been surveys and stuff and I've I've seen for a fact that we're when it comes to how much we spend on editing, we're we're in the top one percent of indie publishers comfortably. Right. Because what we actually do now is um we got we got when we got traditional publishing deal with the Stranger Times, there was we got a brilliant line editor um uh, Rebecca and we actually because all traditional publishing houses now what they've done is, is they've um, they sort of cut back and they outsource all their line editing and stuff. I think they don't have them in-house anymore. So because of that we went, "Oh, so she's she works for herself." I said, "Oh, yeah, brilliant. Could we could we have email because we'd like to get her to do our other books." And they were like, they were like, um, can't think of a reason why we can't <laughs> give you that." Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we we basically and you know, costs a lot because the the rates for like the sort of union rates for for, for line editors, but you know, She does an extremely good job and it's very time consuming. So we're happy to do it because we always we're conscious of the fact that people have this attitude towards self-publishing that they're lesser and they're not as well produced. So we want we always as soon as we could, we wanted to make it to the highest standard possible. And we did that with the audiobooks as well, where I mean, literally um, the guy who narrates the Dublin trilogy audiobooks, Morgan C. Jones, is pretty much the top voiceover guy in Ireland. Um, to the point where every time I go to the sim in Ireland, he's always on one of the adverts <laughs> trying to tell us Like, you know, and um, again, we just, he's, he, you know, he doesn't mind me saying this, but he hasn't complained yet, but he's, you know, he's not cheap. But we wanted to, when things started taking off, we thought, right, we'll reinvest the money to go for the higher standard possible. So I think if people are doing self-publishing or, you know, indie, whatever you want to call it, um, I think the important thing is, obviously, don't spend money you don't have. But if you have the money... And people always these think, what would you? Sp- if you had money for marketing, what would you spend it on? I'd spend it on an editor. That's what I'd spend it on, mm-hmm. because people have this idea they can give X amount of money to a PR person, an editor, and stuff, and a PR person or a marketing person. The reality is, that it's very hard to get an instant, com- you know, turnaround from those things. But what you need to do is make the very best product you can make, then worry about getting it in front of people. Because mm-hmm. even our the editor we got um, on the first book, like the. Um, we got a, we, a guy called Scott Pack as the sort of, uh, you know, overview editor, if you like, uh, who's brilliant. And I didn't know who he was. And only afterwards I realized he'd, he'd done all this stuff in the industry and all that. And um, we brought him, we got him in and he was great. Gave me some really good advice, especially for a first-time author. And he also said, look, this is good. Like he was really nice to us. He said, look, I, I've done a lot of this. This is good. Like he actually said, do you want a publishing deal? Because <laughs> I know people. <laughs> After we've done it, I was like, well, we've bought a cover now. Um <laughs> And even then, when it came out, like the first couple of months, I thought, oh, I, I just I shouldn't have done this myself. And then my wife, bless her, started taking over and literally approaching bloggers and going, look, he'll write something for you if you're a blog and get him on board and stuff. Because bloggers are great people, but my God, they get completely inundated with stuff, bloggers. Authors don't realize that bloggers are really... People do it because they love reading and they end up being burned out by the process because it's so, so overwhelming. But Scott basically told us... Um, get this in front of people and good things will happen Mm -hmm. was his piece of advice at the end. And that's kind of what we did. But as long as you get the book to as as best it can be, then you can worry about doing that because the whole point is then you don't want to miss the opportunity. Like you need the book to be as good as you can because you don't get a second chance. We're in a world where there's Netflix and there's prime video. There's all this stuff. There's so many books. There's so much stuff. When you get the chance to get somebody's time, you cannot be wasting it ever.
0: Mm -hmm. And, and is there more of a pressure when you're doing that sort of indie publishing to get the next product out quickly, get the next mm. product out quickly, rather than the sort of traditional year to 18-month gap in, in trad publishing?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, there's a couple of ways you can look at it. Yeah, there is, I mean, in certain any circles, there's this thing about how fast you need to be producing stuff and all that stuff. And, and look, if people want to do that good look, I think it's, Especially for newer, I've seen like newer authors thinking, I'm doing a seven book series and you go, have you written a book yet? And you go, no, write the first book. <laughs> like literally don't, it's always people running ahead because they start, I think this is the, it's one of the dangers if, you, if you're if you in these kind of groups and your people talking about marketing and stuff and how they do. Oh, I'm doing, you know, I'm writing a book in a week and you go, well, good luck to you, but I'm not and I'm not going to do that. You need to learn, learn what you can do and the best way of doing that. So, I mean, in the upside of indie is you have the flexibility where you can release stuff basically whenever you want. Mm-hmm. So, like, I've had years where I've had four books come out and then I've had years where one or two books came out over the last, you know. And it varies. And a lot of the time there was lesser stuff because I was writing the book that was traditionally published, which comes out a year later, um, which is, you know, like I literally I will finish a traditionally published book. I know in one of the, t- one of the uh, last couple of years finished a traditionally published book, then wrote two or three other books that came out before it. And then the traditional book, because it's a year in advance. Um, so yes, there is, I think there's that pressure if you're not careful about, you know, who you're following and what you're paying attention to. But um, my attitude towards it is, it gives me the flexibility that if I have an idea and I finish the book, that we can do it and we can get it out. Well, you can certainly get it out much quicker than traditional publishing does it. Mm-hmm. Um so it's, it's yeah, I, there's, there's good and bad to it. But like, for example, I've had, I've got like 16 books out now and, you know, obviously three of them are traditionally published, but the rest of them, I would never, if I was traditionally published and my first book came out in 20, it would have been 2017 at least before it came out, mm-hmm. I'd have, 2018, I'd have maybe five books out now and that's yeah. if things had gone really well. um So I got to build the following a lot faster and... One of the problems with traditional publishing, frankly, is that the year model is it's a long time in this day and age for people to be waiting for the next thing, especially if you've only got one book out, Um, which is why I do things like short stories. I do short stories for The Stranger Times where I make them into a podcast and stuff. And I've kind of built up the world of it, both in the books themselves, where the short stories let me expand on the world and really kind of let me think it through, which is great. But it also gives some people... Other things to go to, so that they're they're kind of kept in the ecosystem, so yeah. when it comes back around they 're there for you, which I think is really important yeah, it's true because I mean that,
0: that is a problem you can a debut writer who even has sort of mild success, if they're waiting a year to eighteen months for the next mm-hmm. book, then there's been so many other debuts or whatever that have come out in that time that you can easily be forgotten in the in the crowd,
2: so yeah, especially because I mean frankly Trad publishing is heavily. Focus towards debut authors. Mm-hmm. Um, and like i you know, I said my fourth Trad book's coming out in January, so I've sort of been around it now where you see the big even you walk into Waterstones, there's the big debut thing where they're shoving it out and there's masses of this stuff, and you're know, like there's literally piled high. But that's kind of because you kind of realize what that is. It's because they've bet big on that book. Mm-hmm. So they need to get lots of that book out. So it ends up being a self fulfilling thing to a certain point, at least yeah. initially. But yeah, there is a sort of, you kind of have to know how trad works, especially if you're doing like a series, because the reality is you don't get the same, you know, banging of the drum and stuff for the second and third book by any, you know, by any means. It's just not what happens for anybody, really. Um, But at the same time, a series, if it is doing well publishers love that because people will find the first book and then go and read all the other ones which is that you know that's their dream scenario where people keep going and buying the next book the next week yeah um obviously. but yeah it's a it's a trad's a bit weird is it you have to get used to trad and kind of know what it is or else it could wreck your head frankly yeah
1: i mean and what i mean i, I would like to ask you about that then why, why you because I, I as you said you, you do have a couple of books out now traditionally published what was yeah. it then that you know knowing what you'd learned in the self pubbed world what was it that made you think I'll give that one that go a try
2: I mean it was basically because I got you know I got my, my agent Ed who's great and um, you know the dumb books were dealing with like the foreign rights and all that sort of stuff as well which is good but it was like do you, want to, you know do, do something else and we liked the idea of being hybrid in the sense that we wanted to be with Trad because it kind of frankly it means you're in bookstores you 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 do hit a different area of readers mm-hmm. um. Like, you know, because when you're indie, I mean, people certainly do buy paperbacks and stuff, but the vast majority of your sales are going to probably be Kindle. In fact, at this point, I'm, yeah, I would, we definitely, we outsell on audio. We sell, you know, audiobooks have really been big in the last year for us. And we're actually outselling, I'd say, audiobooks to paperbacks now as well on the, on the, the indie side of stuff which I think was really interesting because again, in Audible, people don't know. People wouldn't no idea that no, we did those sure, ourselves because no. the, yeah. the quality of them is, you know, we stand by them. They're really good. We've spent a lot of time getting it right with Morgan, our, our narrator, but yeah, so we, I guess we just wanted to be in a different area and it's, you know, we wanted to, because, you know, when you are trying to publish, frankly, you, it's much easier to get, you get reviews in the big papers and all that sort of stuff. um You know, you get into the bookshops, you can get into Waterstones and stuff, which you can do as an indie, but frankly, Unless you're somebody who's massive as an indie, um, like L J Ross does it, which she's an audio. She's got her books into bookshops, which is amazing. But L J Ross is selling like I think it's eight million or something. Louise is at now. She's extraordinary, <laughs> incredible like success. Oh, she's an amazing. She's one of the biggest. She should be the, one of the biggest stories in publishing now. Um, but yeah, but unless you're anybody else, it's kind of. I think everybody tries to do it when they're indie. They try and get books into a bookshop, and they go through all the hoopla. And it's one of these things that you after you've jumped through quite a lot of hoops, you quickly realize, ah, uh, this isn't worth the effort. Um, especially when you're when you're running a business. Like I was really lucky. We got one of my books, the third book, got picked up um by the biggest book club in Ireland and made their book of the month. Um by um yeah, and that was a you know an amazing thing. But we got into a bookshop in Ireland because of that and stuff. But even then it didn't really establish what we thought it would, mm-hmm. which is a shame. But you know, then the traditional book publishing and just traditional publishing and bookshops are kind of linked together in reality. That's the thing they are. So it makes sense that way to get in that way. Um, and it's what's been really good is initially we had a lot of people from the the, the Bunny McGarry books, the Dublin trilogy, coming over to the Stranger Times because it is a thing we were talking about earlier on that you know that author and they were hiding the supernatural element in crime in crime books. Yep. There is a danger in that though. You will get some, you will get some readers who just like read the book, they're enjoying it, and then something turns up supernatural. Ah, how dare you! Because <laughs> yeah. crime fans will, some crime fans are very wary about going into other areas. Um, they like you know they like crime, whereas if you get fantasy fans, they generally. I'm much more willing to try a more crime book. So we've had like people go over from the bunny books into the stranger times. Um, cause they were like fans in my right. we just said, look, this is different, but it's all, it's the same voice. You know, it's written by Quay. If you enjoy that, you'll probably enjoy this. And we got a lot of nice reviews and people going, you know, wouldn't normally read this kind of book, but I really enjoyed it. We got a couple of people going, ah, it's <laughs> uh, which is fair enough. They gave it a shot. But what's been lovely now is you've seen them coming back the other way now as well, where people who've read the stranger times books are coming back and finding the bunny books Um, which is great, and it's just sort of one hand washing the other, and it was always our idea that that would be the the hope, and that is definitely happening. So I think, in that regard, I think it's definitely worth you know looking at your options and having a foot in both camps.
0: And and with the trad with the Stranger Times books, uh, you publish those under C K. McDonald um i mean is it is there a, a, was that a publisher thing was that your decision what why did you or is it just because uh, they're a different type of story and you just want to differentiate that way
2: a, a little from all of the above to be honest where we I wanted to keep the queeve McDonald books separate from the stranger Times books because um just boring things like on Amazon and stuff it will cause a bit of bit of confusion and people won't quite understand what they're getting um they also basically they were terrified of queeve as we I mean, literally the word Cueve. <laughs> Um, Despite the fact they said, look, it's it's written on the front of a book. People just need to know how to spell it, and they can get the book. They don't have to know how to pronounce it. But they were genuine. But my my editor is a lovely man, but he's also one of the most English human beings I've ever met in my life. Um And I can remember being they when brought us for a lunch. Him, my uh, agent Ed, and we'd already myself and Ed had already discussed about giving it a different name. And Simon Blessing was like, I was just, could, could we possibly, I mean, maybe, maybe we could, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we should, but if we could, could we, <laughs> I <it> was like, <laughs> was like going, he's going to die before the end of this sentence of a lack of oxygen unless we sort of go, if you're talking about the name Simon, it's fine, we can use something else. <laughs> um. So we use CK, which incidentally my dad got very annoyed about, genuinely annoyed about, God rest his soul, because um, I didn't realise this, but he was like, I didn't understand the other way, we're odd conversation where didn't even understand why somebody was annoyed. But he basically, because basically Queeve uh, is short for queveen, which is the original of Kevin. So I think I put C slash K McDonald as like, we could use those initials. And Ed, my agent went, CK, that sounds good. And just put CK. And I was like, okay, I don't care. But my dad, bless him, um, was like, that's not your name. That is not your, I, <laughs> your second name is not, the, you're named after such and such. He was a friend of mine and he was very annoyed that my second name was, so, you know. So, um, yeah, but that basically it was just because of that. And, um, yeah, because people, frankly, the publisher was terrified of Quave, is the short answer.
1: <laughs> and and in this new series that, that, that you're writing, you reference kind of real-life books like The Zombie Survival Guide by Max Brooks. Is it quite, you quite enjoy kind of, I guess it's not really breaking the fourth wall, but is that kind of touchstones to real-life things a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, I do, I do, that, that, yeah, it's it like the, the It's I, I literally in the fourth book, which is coming out in January, I have somebody with a copy of when they're being attacked by zombies with a copy of his guide. And it's because it's it's a hilarious thing about research that I kind of know I almost have a fun, hilarious disregard for research. Like, I really enjoy, um, like I actually wrote the scene at Liberty this way where I thought it'd be really funny if one of them has the zombie survival guide. And then I'd actually read it years ago. I read I, I like his World War Z. The actually the audio, if I don't get a chance, the audio version of the World yeah. War Z is incredible because yeah. it's yeah. all different actors doing different bits, it's amazing. But so I was a big fan of his work and like the but the zombie survival guy. I deliberately got a copy. I was sitting right where I am right now in my office. I was writing the scene near the end, and I thought, "I'm just going to keep skimming through and picking things out." And there's all these things about if you have access to a helicopter, automatic weapons, <laughs> and things. And it basically then the whole thing in the thing was um, this guy just skipping through and going, "Has had him a helicopter? How we got going to?" And it ended up being so much more fun then, just rather than like just doing that as the the ridiculousness of it because as a general rule with the Stranger Times and I kind of fell into this by accident but I love doing it everything exists in that world all the zombie movies all the the vampire movies and stuff because I always think it's so bizarre in in you know any kind of fiction where they're going there's this person but they don't seem themselves they seem sort of I don't know what <laughs> yeah. word you'd use it's like zombie we all know it's a zombie just call it a fucking zombie I, I always um, love
1: that when they go out their way to not use the word a walker zombie, or whatever, a walker yeah. Or yeah. yeah as if as if the word zombie doesn't exist in this universe yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think I did this actually weirdly I do something
2: similar with the Bunny books where um, my characters will reference TV shows. And like Bridget is one of the main characters in it. And she's an obsessive crime fan, like a fan of books. And I think it's really funny that she's comparing it. I think it's 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 funny, but it also weirdly helps with the kind of sense of reality to it, mm. because instead of just following a conventional crime story, If something happens, they're referring to what it would be like in a conventional crime story. And it almost you go, oh, well, then you don't really know what's happening. If they're deliberately referring to if this was like that, this is what would happen. Um, And it's like there's a lot of fun, like even just like you can have one of the best places you can find humor. Is by acknowledging the tropes of the genre. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Because um, I think that can be a lot of fun because you got like readers love that as well because they like they know what the tropes are and they love the fact that you've given them respect to know they know. Um, and you can have a lot of fun with that as well. So yeah, I I, I always. It, um...
1: It's something that I, I've always loved in the Scream movies, how they're so self-referential yeah. about what a horror movie is and how a sequel has to work. And they openly talk about things that have to yeah. happen in a sequel or a trilogy. And yeah. it's all kind of you know poking fun at it and stuff. And
2: It's brilliant. It's, it's and, yeah, and, and the audience really enjoy that because yeah. they feel like they're in the thing with you because they're like in on the joke rather than you trying to. Yeah. So I think it's great. Yeah. I love doing that. And, and
0: I wanted to ask a bit about your process as well, because obviously you mentioned earlier that you're sitting beside, we can't see it as we record this, but you're sitting beside a board with lots of, of post-its and stuff stuck on it. I mean, are you a big planner before you start writing your
2: books then? I sort of, we're, I'm kind of a mix, I would say, in the sense that I kind I need to have enough of the jigsaw puzzle. It's like having the corners and stuff. So I basically, I need to know, when I start writing, I need to know what the first maybe seven or eight chapters are, and then I need to sort of have a vague idea what's going to happen, obviously the overall theme of the thing. Um, sometimes I have the ending, sometimes I don't, um, but I need to have enough of the pieces, because I find then what happens is I start writing the first few chapters, and once you start writing it, it, it you know, it's like that, you know. Um, everyone has a plan till they get punched in the face that Tyson quote about you know it's, yeah, yeah. it's the same as when you're writing a book everyone thinks they think, but then you get stuck into it and then when it, you have it then you can adapt to it so you start when I'm and when my brain is when I'm writing the book then my brain is fully focused on the book I'm writing and then when my brain starts working away at it, other bits it starts filling in ahead of me so what usually happens is I'm writing like the first five or six chapters by the time I'm finished that my brain is filled in the next chunk and it's got the ending sorted out in its head and you know and it's sort of and usually, generally, I get to the point where I'll stop a couple of times for like a day, maybe, and kind of have a look at the board and reorganize some stuff. But generally, once I start writing, I'm kind of doing like a chapter or two a day and it's just sort of rolling on because my brain is working ahead of me, which is, you know, very, very
1: handy. <laughs> and, and and how do you how do you draft? Do you find you kind of have a quite a clean first draft or is that kind of process mean you kind of have a rough draft that you then edit down?
2: Well, generally, one of the biggest things I do is uh, I start every day reading the, what I wrote the day before. So I go over the day before. So by the time I get to the end of it, then it's actually pretty clean because generally like what will happen is I'll have gone through it. And then at some some point, usually about two thirds of the way through this, this was never deliberate, but it seems to be, I've noticed it consistently before I get into the final act. I think I have a tendency to to download the whole thing, read through the whole thing, make some notes on it again. And clean it up as I'm going. Um, and then I write this sort of the finale, because the finale always comes out in a bit, it's always a, you know, it's it's the hardcore writing for days and days and days straight straight because I'm I'm near the end and it's exciting for me. Um so yeah, by the end of it, then it ends up becoming pretty clean. I say pretty clean, then I'll I'll give it to my wife as like my zero editor. So she'll read it, she'll clean the whole thing up, and then it goes to developmental editor and line editor and stuff. So there's still a load of stuff, but the actual structure of the story is there. Mm-hmm and most of the time occasionally you have to like throw in the the only big change I usually make is somebody will point out goes It'd be great to know a bit more about this person or you know, a bit more about mm-hmm. that yeah. so what often happens is like in the last stranger times book I think I stuck in one short chapter and I edited another chapter just to added a little bit more color just to flesh out a couple of points but that was really the only things generally they end up being quite clean by the end and
0: and you mentioned that you've got a uh a literary agent at what at what stage in this whole journey did you did you get an agent then
2: I think I got it um about three or four books Four maybe my fourth book was in I started looking at various agents and they they kind of we'd had a bit of interest from like kind of telly people in, in America and stuff um and that was I kind of used that as a as a good point to go well this is a good introduction to agents go look we've had this thing and we've got you know a couple of queries about foreign rights and stuff. So it was probably relatively early in the process. I mean, um, in the sense that it's about you know because then I started looked at a couple of different agents and I had serious talks with a couple of them before I went with Ed. Um, but I mean, people always, I think when 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 authors are looking for agents that you you really cannot take that process personally. And it's only when you're like literally when you have an agent and I I, I kind of genuinely myself and Ed get on really well and I you know I have a chat with him and stuff. And you can ask any agent, they'll tell you this, how much stuff, like the physical amount of stuff they get in a week. When you're like, because Ed, I tried to get an agent when I first started doing my first book, tried to get an agent and got no interest. Ed was one of the people that I don't think ever got back to me. Um, and I think I, hilarious, I think I, I, I found the original email I sent him, I used to go and send it to him one day last year, go, by the way, this is the first email I ever sent you. You still haven't responded to it, you prick. Um, <laughs> and he was just sort of laughing it off and stuff. But yeah, um, so I got one about, yeah, about that point in the process. And um, I think they're you know, I know some people don't bother getting them at all if they're if they're Indian stuff, but I think with things like foreign rights and stuff, him and Helen from the the agency do a brilliant job on that. And things like TV and stuff, um, I think you need somebody who knows the lay of the land. And frankly, I can be um, refreshingly direct, which is a nice way of phrasing it. The other way of phrasing it is a bull in a china shop. So having me between having Ed there to go, what do you? I'll I'll say what you what you just told me to say, but I am going to say it in a much nicer way Uh, (laughs) because he's he's a very charming man. Um, So it's I think it's just in a lot of ways that agents make a lot of sense, particularly. I have a great relationship with mine, Um, but yeah, it's been invaluable. But yeah, once you get to a certain point, you definitely do need them. I think.
0: Yeah, and and you've written your your different series are you know there's different settings for them obviously dublin uh for the 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 dublin trilogy but you've also written books in america and stranger times in manchester and stuff yeah. do you enjoy visiting these different places in in the as you as you write these things
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, Dublin is obviously where I grew up, yeah. um, and I live in Manchester now, and I actually actually wrote a book in America before I'd ever written one in Manchester. And it, it was weird because I kind of felt bad about, yeah, why don't I write something here? And then The Stranger Times, which is the sort of fantasy paranormal one, um, it just sort of all clicked together, where the idea was like a sort of low-end version of The 14 Times um, that I had years ago for a sitcom script that went nowhere. Um, and then it was literally, Manchester was where I lived at the time. I walked from my, I always had an office outside the house because I could never work in the house. Um, and I was walking from my flat to the office going, it's in Manchester. And I was literally, the, the their office is in a converted church that the church is based on is on my way to my office. You know, it all just sort of was spiraling together and uh, made perfect sense. But yeah, I love that. I like Dublin is just like going home. It's great. Like I have I to do a bit of research for, for bits and pieces. But the fact is I'm from Dublin. So even if it's wrong, I'm going to go with my version of it. Um, but cause I have got stuff wrong about Dublin and people that get very annoyed at me about it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Now I just go, oh, it's multiverse. It's my version of Dublin. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the greatest cover ever. And I love it. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of it's my fun way of going home, really. Um, I mean, obviously i do also go home but yeah um and then manch and then the american thing i was always fascinated by america growing up as a kid of a big nfl fan and all these sort of things and i think it's just a, a, a it's a fascinating place america for all the good and bad that's in america i still think it's an incredible place so and i just love the idea frankly you taking bunny mcgarry one of the big driving things behind the with him, the, the american books was bunny was sort of he knew everything. Like he was, he just, he knew Dublin backwards. He's from Cork, but he's, he was the whole idea was he, he kind of knew Dublin backwards. And it just seemed then like so great. The idea of, well, let's just take him out of what he's mm-hmm. the, where he has all this, you know, knowledge and sort of thing and shove him somewhere where he is yeah. really a fish out of water. Um, and he sort of, like the whole thing was supposed to be like my semi sort of uh, Jack Reacher type thing. But I've discovered what Lee Child can write. Lee Child can write a bloke who just doesn't have many friends and, and turns up somewhere I've discovered whatever it says about me that um, every time I um, write a book, I keep coming up with characters that are supposed to be small characters and they end up getting bigger parts and then they end up hanging around. Um, And I end up literally with like, basically, I use this analogy, but it's true. You know that scene in The Muppets Take Manhattan they're in the car. They're picking one of them up, and they start picking up the rest of them up. And they're all in the back of the car. And there's more and more of them getting into the car. That's what my books are like. I keep picking these people up, and I can't get rid of any of them. So my books end up just being full of characters that I just can't let go.
1: And see, when you're writing these kind of long series of books, and you've got you know different characters and different 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 um, roots in, I suppose for for new readers, are you always conscious about someone might be jumping on here halfway through. Do you always have to kind of leave a way in a back door room for people so they don't get lost?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it, that's, that is one of the big tricky things. Um particularly I would say probably more with the, the Stranger times because there's a lot going on in the Stranger Times books because mm. there's, it's a, it's a, it's a band of seven journalists, you know, working this thing. So this, this ends up being like, there'd be a B and a C plot and stuff. And I had this idea of making them sort of standalone-ish, but that's very hard to do in a series. Um, so I think it's one of these things where in a lot of series, they kind of reintroduce things every time, which you do do to a certain point. You just mm-hmm. have to. It's it's one of these things where you have to balance it, where you don't want to bore people who know. But you have to also and also people need to be reminded occasionally of stuff. But like there's I won't name the author. There's a series of books I'm a big fan of. They're kind of like thrillers and they're great and they're brilliantly written books. Like, we need to get over the fact that every time you start reading one he reintroduces the character every time and it's like, he just, okay, all right. yeah. I know what you're doing it, but it just, I've never seen someone bang it quite that hard. So like, for example, if I'm honest, like I think my first book, there's like the second book, you could pick up this charming man and you'd get everything. Uh, Love will tear us apart was the third book in the series, but because it ended up concluding a lot of stuff that happened in the first two, in all honesty, while I did recap it and stuff, I, I was like, if anyone was trying to, I was like, we'll read the first one. Like, this is not a good one to jump on. Yeah. And then, but the fourth book um, is, I think you can get in there again, and you can you can kind of get it. So it's it's a, it's a thing. I've seen Ben Aranovich talk about it as well because they talk about jumping on points and stuff like that. I think, and he said in his books, he said to be honest, there are books that are good jumping on points and not good jumping on points. Um, and while the idea ideal is every book needs to be a good jumping on point, and it is something you always have to be thinking about, the reality is to serve the story properly, you can't just go back and recap. So some books won't be, and you just have to sort of go. Well, that one isn't, but you know that's that's what that's where we are. Yeah.
0: And and would you want to go back to writing scripts and that sort of thing, Uh, or are you happy in the world of books?
2: Uh, I think, to be honest, like with, I mean, both everything's been option for TV and stuff, which is cool. And I've not really um, had very little to do with any kind of scripts that people are coming up with and stuff. May I think a couple of years ago when I first got up, I had like, no interest in doing the TV thing because I spent a lot of time doing that and frankly not getting that's would not getting anywhere, not getting to the finish line. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever it, writing books, TV writing, it can be soul destroying because you get you can spend a year working on a script and it just doesn't go anywhere. And especially in Britain, it gets read by three people who are the ones in power, and if you can't get them on board, then good night, it's a waste of time. Whereas I like writing a book, thinking whatever's happening, this book's coming out, even if. <laughs> God forbid, my publishers will get on great with if they decide they don't want it. They can't stop me publishing. it. Um, so, yeah, it's I think, though, maybe now I'm at the point where I maybe might get back to that and stuff. And have, um, there's a mate of mine, Phil Mealy, I wrote. Um, I helped him write. In, um, he's done a musical on making a murderer um, that did really well in Edinburgh and stuff. And I know there was a lot of interest. I heard from him recently. I'm going to speak to him next week about what's going on. But I basically I was writing that with him for a while. And then I ended, I'm sort of, he kept going with it and I had to go and I sort of book stuff came up that I had to do. But I enjoyed doing that. I might write a play and stuff. I think there's a play idea I have that I really like that I want to do with Phil at some point. And maybe I will look at doing scripts um, on some of the TV things in the future, um, depending on what happens and where they currently are. But we'll see. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but, put it this way, I it was the definite no two years ago. Now it's like... Yeah. A,
0: so what what have you got lined up next? You've got the fourth Stranger Times book coming out. What else is in the pipeline?
2: Yeah, that's that's coming out in uh, end of January. I'm writing a bunny book now, which is the fourth McGarry Stateside. Because basically, there, there was going to be it's a whole different book that was going to be the fourth one. Because um, basically, I couldn't write that because the pandemic happened, and if you've seen the news, but there was a wall there, and no one could leave their house, <laughs> so research was became really and, and th- that idea would have been weirdly it was just very research intensive that idea that was going to be that book and I was kind of stuck then because I thought well I'm not going to write that book because I get it wrong and then I came up with a novella idea this happens a lot I came up with an idea for a short thing that ends up becoming a novel that's (laughs) happened to me in my first ever book it happened to me there's a welcome to nowhere it's a standalone thing with but actually secondary characters from the McGarry Stateside series there was a short story called Smithy's Revenge People kept saying, that feels like it's just a start of a thing. I was like, yeah, it does, doesn't it? So I ended up writing that whole thing as a as a, as a very odd novel that I really enjoyed. Um, and I've done that a couple of times. And then this, what I'm doing now is McGarry Stateside Book 4 was supposed to be a novella um, that I just came up with an idea for um, that literally starts with them trying to find a toilet um which is a great (laughs) inciting incident for a crime filler um with somebody just desperately needing the loo but i'm so i'm writing that that'll come out before christmas and then i mean to be honest i have i think it's one of these things people always think ideas are such a big thing ideas are ten a penny it's it's the actually converting them i have ideas for like the next three but bunny books um waiting to go um so it's just a question of finding the time and there's some yeah there's I think I'm going to try and find the time hopefully in the next year or so to write something that's neither of those two things just to do something different, just to, cause I, I really, I genuinely, really enjoy writing. I always feel it was at a conference at the weekend, actually. And I always feel bad because I think this happens. You might notice this a writer's conferences, but writers can be quite negative when people ask about the whole publishing process and the whole writing process. Yeah. I think it just sort of happened. Like I was there this weekend again, you don't want to, you know, but I was like, um, I, I love writing books I, I genuinely do I think it's it's. I, I come up to my office I'm never like oh here we go mm. I enjoy it I think especially how I write I have to enjoy it almost because it's, there, there has to be a sense of play and this is my sense of play I get to tell myself stories I sit in a room and tell myself stories and the only person I discuss it with until it's finished is the dog Um, and you know that I love doing that I think it's a wonderful thing to do and people say it I mean this isn't what you're I adding mean, close to what you're asking but I'm going to say it now because it's in my head because I do know, like, people talk about how hard it is to get a publishing deal and stuff like this. And look, it is. I'm not saying it isn't by any means. But the thing is, these things have always been hard. It's like people talk about, oh, stand-up comedy. It's so hard to get in stand-up comedy now. And like, yeah, but these things have always been hard. Are they harder than they were? Maybe. But don't focus on the thing about it being hard. Because if you focus on the problem, then the problem becomes all you think about. What you need to do is do it as well as you can and then see what happens. And not, like... You, you can't, you know. I think people are worrying about a publishing deal before they've written a book, and they're put worried about, you know, they're doing a five minute stand up set, and they're worried about is it going to be hard to get on on TV, yeah, and all this. And the reality is, you have to first get really good and enjoy the thing, and then worry about everything else. And I do think there's a real tendency now, and like, like when I saw, like, you know, I saw, I saw you know a very good author talking about, oh, it's the, the industry's this, that, and the other, and I can see why he was he's had bad experiences, clearly. But I saw a room full of hopeful writers and you could see their faces like, Oh, this is <laughs> and I was like and I just think we focus on that side of things too much. I think we should embrace that it's an enjoyable thing and you can make a good living. Lots of people are. We know that. So, you know. Yeah.
0: Arguably there's there's yeah it might be difficult to get a publishing deal but at the same time there are more routes into it now with things like indie publishing and stuff like that as well
2: so just yeah there's an abundance of ways in so just worry about being good at it you know and then you can i mean indie does favor certain things it favors people who write series more or less you know and it, you know people who maybe write faster than one book a year does it does favor that because you can get you know the best advert is your next book and stuff but the point is there's lots of different ways in, exactly as you said, and depending on what you want out of the process and stuff. There's lots of different ways you can go, um, and nobody's you know nobody on the deathbed has ever regretted writing a book. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> just, that's like that's something you go. That's you know you should be proud of yourself for yeah. doing that. That's a that's a cool thing that you've achieved, um, and people should just Im- enjoy, embrace it, and enjoy it, and maybe not worry so much about the negative side of it, uh, especially in the early stages. I think. <laughs>
0: What was the last book that you read?
2: Uh, oh, I'm, I'm I'm currently reading Ben Aranovich's Winter's Gift, which is great, as always. And before that, actually, the last one I finished was uh, Small Mercies um, by Dennis Lahan, who is incredible. He's just an amazing writer, and that is yeah. a superb book.
1: Um, what about the last film that you watched?
2: The last film I watched actually was, uh, for the second time, the Dungeons & Dragons film, which, oh, by the sense. way, is superb. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen it, but but yeah, I loved it. Yeah, that's it. Everyone I speak to who's seen it loved it, and yet weirdly, it it didn't. It wasn't a flop by any means, but it didn't do. I think they got the marketing horribly wrong in it. Um, because I was like, I don't know about you, but I was watching it going, and I used to be a big superhero film fan. And I'll be honest, the last few that have come out, uh, I went to see Guardians of the Galaxy because that was quality. But a lot of the few, few, not even so much their quality, but also I, I found myself not being that bothered by going to see them. Yeah, um, and I think that was a big because I was like, Shit, if I, if they're losing me, they're in trouble. Because I was going to see all these things, <laughs> and I think that is honestly. And but I, I saw Dungeons and Dragons and went, this is going to be the next ten years of cinema. Like the, like the big, we will have fantasy films where they keep, they believe they can do these things because it's like the gags and I mean, say like gag, but the, the humor and it's great and they really work. I mean, I watched it the second time, you go. And like, and the invention that, that that allowed the writers to have, like, the heist with. The, do you remember the thing with the mirror and the portal yeah, and yeah, all that yeah. sort of stuff? That's. I don't care what anyone says. That's a superb bit of cinema. Yeah. It's brilliantly fun, and even a friend of mine, Sarah, who's no interest in fantasy stuff, went to see it twice in the cinema because she said I just laughed my ass off the first time, and it was laughed the second time again because it was just fun. Um I so, I, if awesome. anyone's seen that, I highly recommend yeah, yeah
0: not, no I it's, it, i've heard good things but I, I i think you're right i think there's something about the way they marketed it or there's maybe still uh you know people don't want to be associated with dungeons and dragons in some way or something that yeah i think people are going or something there like was that. part
2: of that i think a parody came out opposite super mario brothers which was just a juggernaut because of the, mm. the the thing so and it was a few different things but what was interesting like the reviews have been great for it yeah and I've basically even, because I've been taking an interest in it, because I had an idea for a film in that area that I would, um, I, you know, I don't even know if I'd ever come to write it, but I'd I'd love to pitch it. But, um, and I was like, oh, well, you know, because I assumed Dungeons and Dragons when I saw the reviews and it was a big film and like I saw it and saw how good it was. I thought, well, this was a smash hit. And then I was, I looked into it and went, oh no, it wasn't a smash hit. I mean, yeah. it's not okay. Yeah, It should have been a smash hit. But I think mm-hmm. like basically the studio kind of acknowledged that, that, yeah we, we we may have not done this right we need to look at why we did why we did it because the film is so good i'm really hopeful when it goes on streaming because people are more inclined to give it a shot if they're just sitting in their house yeah, and they're oh yeah, it, yeah especially sure. yeah. yeah especially when it goes like it'll eventually be free somewhere like prime or something in a year six months time and i think then you'll see people it'll really get a second wind um and i think there'll be more of them because it's too good not to do again it was just too good
0: yeah i agree uh what what about the last tv show that you watched or
2: are watching um, I'll tell you what I'm loving. Where we finished it now, but Colin from Accounts, if you've not seen it, the I've Australian it. sitcom. Oh, it's I've it's it. it's great. I did see people recommending it, and it's really good. It's basically, I mean, you technically would call it a romantic comedy. It's about two people getting together, but it's really, it's it's not in this. It's it's sort of taking that and turning it on its head. It's it's very beautifully written comedy. Just really well drawn characters. And the two of them sort of bumping up together you know in awkward ways. Um and it's it's great. It's I'm a big, big fan of it. I think it's a, it's a fantastic piece of writing. And I think it'll um it's already been a bit of a I think it's a bit under underground hit, but I think more and more people are hearing about it because it's just really good.
0: Nice. Is that on one of the streaming services? I think it's just
2: on iPlayer, so it's a, yeah, right, okay. pretty much everyone Excellent. I think i to that. So it's it's great. Highly recommend it
1: right um and the very very last thing we always do is a super quick fire either or and uh i would say there's no right answer here apart from perhaps one of them but we'll start off with terry pratchett or ben aranovich oh
2: oh i mean don't i mean i was gonna i was gonna say whoever the second one is losing i mean (laughs) because look i mean ben's brilliant i love his work and you know he's he's a great bloke and stuff but terry pratchett gave him my love of reading so it's terry pratchett Against anybody, it's always going to be Terry Pratchett. I'm afraid. I mean, I literally. Uh, hang on a sec. I'll. Uh, you want to This is good podcasting, but this is my bust of Sir Terry Pratchett uh, oh, that I have sitting oh. beside me at all times, and it's got his own hat and his own glasses that come off. And when I'm writing, his glasses are on because then I'm being serious. And when I'm on a break, his glasses are off because then it's fun time, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh
0: What about a uh, TV or cinema?
1: Ooh. I'll have to go TV now. I think yeah. Uh, night owl or early bird?
2: Used to be a night owl. Then it gave up being a stand-up comedian, and it freaks <laughs> my wife out now. So I go to bed at like quarter to eleven, and she's like, "Oh, okay." Because um, it used to be five in the morning. um So yeah, I'm I'm a former night owl now, uh, early bird, I guess. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Uh, music or no music when you're writing?
2: Oh, I can't I can't have music on when I'm writing. Um, I've tried that. I, the only thing I could listen to is uh, with no lyrics. Hmm. I'm like Michael when he's making an album. I can't be listening to somebody else's lyrics. <laughs> uh,
1: and the last one, uh, real book or e-book? Uh,
2: you'd be pleased to hear. I know this is a close personal thing <laughs> here. Uh, I actually mostly read on Kindle, if I'm entirely Fantastic. honest. Fantastic. That's good yeah. to hear. Excellent.
1: <laughs> Excellent. I think there's five of us now we have we should, we, should, we should get jackets made <laughs>
2: Tattoos I think Tattoos yeah, yeah. The, kin- the Kindle cl- no, no, no I was going to say that, That's not <laughs> <Yeah>. good letters <laughs> yeah.
1: The Kindle cool kids no, yeah. yeah maybe not uh, Yeah
0: no thanks very much
2: That was a lot of fun Cheers thanks very much for having me Delighted. That was great
0: So, uh, have you seen the D and D film yet, Tarek?
1: No, I've not seen it. Yeah, I have heard genuinely nothing but good things about it, and it's on Paramount Plus now, so I have no excuse not exactly.
0: to watch it. No, I, I would yeah. definitely like. Like Cueve was saying, it's a lot. I thought it was a lot better than some of the more recent superhero fare. You know.
1: Yeah, and to be fair, it, I know it's not done very well. Um, although a lot, a lot of good stuff doesn't seem to be doing well at the moment. I, I don't know if it has been lumped into the whole, you know, superhero fatigue. It seems to be in play, yeah. Like or something. I, don't I know.
0: mean, I think, well, I, yeah, as we discussed there at the end, but it was a number of factors that came out against the Super Mario movie, which did much better than that's right. Everyone yeah. thought, and then also, I think they didn't really market it as much as they could have because it is Dungeons and Dragons, maybe. And they're still, yeah, uh, maybe
1: a tough sell to White's. Avoid- or yeah, audience, although I don't really perhaps. know
0: why, because you've got, like, Lord of the Rings. Stranger Things. Got, is, yeah, there's there's a lot of fantasy stuff yeah. that is more popular, Game of Thrones and all that and, sort that, of stuff. And, and
1: that's, you know, so that's things like Stranger Things specifically. Yeah, exactly. They play, they, they play the D&D, and it's, it's a part of the story, isn't it? So, yeah, I you know. And also, I mean, comic books, movies are massive, and that you can't really get much nerdy than that. No, exactly, exactly. So. Anyway,
0: I highly recommend it, and it is now streaming. So, yeah, if you if you haven't seen it. Yeah, definitely do that and um, but i thought it was interesting what he was saying about you know how, how he treats comedy not as a genre but just as a style so you could put comedy yeah. in any type of story if it's done well but it always has to serve the story really
1: yeah i think i think it's a really interesting way to look at it and there's no genre which you can't write in a funny slant or manner if 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 you want to take the angle and I, I, as you see as, as as long as the the story is being served properly and it's not just at the expense of it i think yeah there's no reason why you can't have dark super dark humor and you know sometimes the most funniest moments are inappropriate or come out of left field well, in a dark movie and you catch unaware exactly
0: of those, you know? or even like the sopranos which was a pretty serious show at yeah, times also had yeah. a lot of stupid yeah funny moments in it as well you know think of the
1: episode when they the, Christopher the Pine Barrens, chase the guy in the that's in the, the forest. Yeah. One, of the one of the best. of my favorite. Ever yeah, seen. exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah,
0: the interior decorator. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so if you haven't seen that episode of The Sopranos, I also recommend that. Um, yeah, but uh, it's fantastic. yeah, but, and also sort of publishing's attitudes to that and being, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me. I think he's right in what he says about publishing being the industry. Generally, being quite conservative with the small c, um, yeah. in terms of what it wants to publish, and it's only when something out of the ordinary does well that it suddenly says, "Oh, well, maybe that does work," and then the, that's yeah. what they look for. I, kind mean, of a thing. I mean,
1: it's something we've we've chatted about countless times, and you know, but uh, how often do you get a breakout book, and then suddenly every book's got a very similar front cover for the next like three, four, five years yeah. because it's just created this boom, and yeah, it's it's. Um, I honestly think the way to do it is not to have an eye marketing, know what kind of stuff sells and what stuff doesn't, but ultimately write the book you want to write and, and don't pander or chase a perceived trend. I think.
0: Yeah, and, and also, I suppose, related to that, as he was saying, if you're self-publishing, make the book as good as it can be. Hire, spend mm-hmm. the money on an editor... Yeah. and things like that rather than on the marketing because you want to make the product as best as it can be so that if it does get in front of people they like it and they're impressed by it rather than yes turning out a product that isn't so good but you have adverts for it everywhere that's you might get a lot of sales initially but then it'll drop off very quickly if you do that yeah yeah yeah
1: no 100 100 no that was that was a great chat yeah we've was and some excellent advice
0: yeah yeah Uh, really good fun to have on the podcast as well so yeah you can get all his books Uh, we'll put links in the podcast description um and uh before we get to next week's guest we have that rare thing Tarek, an email (gasps) yes from a listener although i have to say we're late to this as well because this this email came in uh after the Lauren Bukas episode that we did recently. Oh. Um, Sorry, mum,
1: but should, we should get back to you soon. No, no, it's not your mum even either. It's not my <laughs> no, mum. No,
0: no. Uh, Andrew Park writes in uh, and he, he says, um, I've been meaning to write for a while to say thank you for one of the best, if not the best podcast I'm writing and authors anywhere. So thank you for that, Andrew. Um, you lads really have a great talent for communicating with authors and being open to what they have to say. appreciate that. Uh, but he says that he listened to the Lauren Bucus episode and he could really I hear it was
1: absolute shit. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. We ruined that one. Uh, he can really hear her despair of the potential impacts of AI on writing. The impacts of ChatGPT and similar so-called AIs on the creative professions could be incalculable. Most of all, he empathizes with Lauren's comments about the preferences of the general public. Uh, He says, I might disagree with her slightly. It's true that many in the public do not care, but I also think many in the general public care a lot about writing and perhaps an even larger segment of the public like a good read, but give little thought to what is about a particular book that made it a good read. However, when those same readers get exposed to bad writing, they recognize it and know they don't like it. So while the advent of ChatGPT has been almost universally negative, eventually readers and investors will, will realise that A, it's completely overhyped, B that it cannot replace a good human writer, and C that AI could AI overall could kill creativity as we know it. So yeah, it's a bit it's a Excellent big issue. Letter. Um thanks for thanks for writing in, Andrew. Um yeah, and obviously AI has been in the news a lot. There's the author, the big lawsuit now against ChatGPT for books being sucked mm-hmm. into um, ChatGPT and f- used to train it and things like that. So, I mean, I agree with a lot of what he's saying there in terms of it not. It, 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 to me, it's a bit like a a magician's trick. It, it looks good, ChatGPT, when yeah. you first use it, and it
1: there's no real intelligence. No, but
0: when you start you start playing with it a bit more, it, it it starts to be less and less impressive. And with yeah. creativity especially, I think it is way off. I mean, it may, of course, we're talking about something that could grow at exponential speed, so it may get better, and it no doubt it will. But at the moment, I don't think it's anywhere near good enough to write stories no. that people actually want to read.
1: I I agree, and I, I agree with a lot of what Andrew says in his letter. And, and I, think, I think he's totally right that people even if they can't articulate perhaps what it is a, that they'd like to read or, or or why authors, you know, and why particular authors reach them and others don't, I think they recognize bad writing. I think everyone fundamentally recognizes bad writing because you get bored. You're reading yeah. and you're like, I'm just, this is boring. You yep. know? Whether you're calling it bad writing or whatever, or if, if you're like, I can't, if, if you're not looking forward to reading it again or you drop off it, that's bad writing. Mm-hmm. and um, And I think that is what... AI is capable of doing at the moment. It's, I do, do not think it's capable of writing a fantastic book that is on par with something which a human being, a good human being writer, can 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 put out. So yeah, I think obviously. I mean, by the time this episode goes out, I'm sure it's probably advanced. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's probably it's, a lot. Better. I'm actually an AI, Marco. <laughs> exactly, but
0: you know, it, it's it is. I, I think I think it's very overhyped at the moment, and um, mm. but I do think it's very important to. The, things like the lawsuit that authors are taking, I think th- steps need to be taken to try and stop it Oh, yeah, yeah it and, and the whole strike, etc. And, 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 exactly, yeah. And, yeah. And, and threatening the creative industries, which it definitely yeah. does. And, you know, yeah. uh, arguably it's threatening artists more than it is writers at the moment because that has grown exponentially, its abilities in that field. So I suppose it's a demonstration of what could happen in the writing world
1: as well. Yeah, and with, with the writing world, I suppose it's it, it's what it is good enough for at the moment is that kind of sloppy, badly written first draft, which then someone can come in and fix for a cheaper rate etc but yeah it's i think the. i think the whole ai issue is really important not for now when it's not really on par for books anyway but in you know one two three five ten years time who knows so yeah putting those safeguards in early doors is really important i think
0: yeah so thanks very much andrew for for writing in it is a big topic so it's it's one that we're bound to come back to oh yeah uh, for sure a lot in in the future so um, if you want to write in as well, Tarek will give you the details of how to do that in a moment. But first, uh, we just want to tell you about next week's guest.
1: Yeah, Next week, we're sticking with the comedian angle. and We're chatting with Ian Moore, who is uh, a stand-up comic. So that was he, how he started off his writing career. Uh, and Actually also into...
0: Queve's friend, as, as we found that's, out. Queave, on,
1: that's right, he is indeed, yeah. Um, and he's he's, he's he's a very funny guy and he's written a number of books now comedy memoirs but also some serious thrillers um, and uh, yeah it's a uh, it's a really fun chat with him and uh, if you enjoyed the quive one i think you'll enjoy ian's chat as well yeah
0: definitely uh, so please do tune in for that one uh, if you enjoyed this episode please do take the time to give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app as that helps us to continue to get great guests on the podcast
1: and if you want to get in touch with us, like Andrew did, imagine, imagine, how do we know Andrew actually exists? Andrew, if you exist, send another email, because I'm now concerned that Andrew's actually an AI, <laughs> writing in saying, guys, don't need to don't stress about AI, is fine, it's totally he, he, cool. He
0: did give, he did give us a, a, it came from an email address, but I suppose that could be chat, GBT.
1: Oh, okay, Tricking interesting. It. And I've changed my, my view on Andrew 100%. Right? <laughs> anyway, if you'd like to get in touch with us like AI Andrew Bot did, you can send us an email to podcast at writegear.co.uk or you can get in touch with us across every social media platform there is essentially by searching for at page one pod. Uh, or if you'd like to find us on uh, Mastodon, you can do so by going to writing.exchange forward slash at page one pod.
0: Yep. Yeah. But otherwise, have a great week and we'll speak to you again next episode. See you later.